Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Dave Coplin, and I am so grateful. I appreciate that you had a choice of four sessions, and you chose mine. I will make it worthwhile, I promise. So my name is Dave. Please understand, I have a comedy job title. I am, check me out, I am a chief envisioning officer. Yeah, I'm quite proud of that job title. I made it up. I have spent the last three decades working with or for the world's largest technology companies. I started my career with Apple. I've just left 12 years at Microsoft. And in those three decades, 30 years working with technology, the thing that I found that is most important about technology and where we're going with it funnily enough, has got nothing to do with the technology itself, but is instead all about the humans that use it. So I created a company. My company's job is to work with organizations like you, industries like you, to try and help you envision a different future where the technology enables us to do amazing new and different things. Now, I would love to tell you that I spend all of my time working with big technology companies and the world's leading academics, and I do, but if you really want to know what I do for a living, day in, day out, you simply have to ask my wife. Because whenever we're out somewhere, someone may say to her, what does your husband actually do for a living? And she just looks at me and scorns and says, him? He just talks bollocks for a living. Fair enough, everyone's a critic. So I spent all my time trying to get people to be excited about technology products, and then I realized that the most important thing was actually not the products, but the humans, so I started to write books. The first book I wrote was a book called Business Reimagined, and it's about how the way we work today doesn't actually work. And I followed that up with another book, and it's, this is the story I really want to talk to you about today, and it's called The Rise of the Humans. And on one level, it's about our personal relationship with technology and why that prevents us from getting to the opportunity that technology offers us. And then the second, it's about this big coming storm. We've talked about it already this morning in this room, the rise of artificial intelligence fueled by data, the thing that is going to change not just the way that we work, it's going to change the way that we live. It's going to change every single human being on the planet will be touched by this technology. And I think in the fullness of time, we will even change how we define what it means to be human as a result of this technology. Now, there's a couple of things I have to tell you about my books. The first is I'm a relatively cheap date, so if you're interested in these books, you can download them from Amazon if you have a Kindle, or if you don't have a Kindle, tweet me and I'll send you a download code. The second thing is perhaps a bit more important, and I kind of feel like we're family, and so I have to confess some things about my dark past. And what you need to know is that there was a point in my past where I was a bit down on my luck. Um, and I ended up doing some things for money that I'm not terribly proud of today. Um, look, I was a management consultant, okay? Don't hate me. <laughs> As a result of being a management consultant, you will find no answers in my books because I was a good consultant. But what you will find, just like in the next 35 minutes, is a series of provocations. My job today here is not to give you the answer. My job is to help you question what you do, the way you run your business, your own personal relationship with technology. If I've done my job right and done my job well in the next 35 minutes, you will leave this room with a different perspective on how amazing technology could be if you could just get it into the right place. Now, many of you by now should have figured out that I position myself as a thought leader. Now, the thing about being a thought leader is, unlike my job title, I can't just call myself a thought leader. If you want to be a thought leader, you have to go to thought leadership school. It's true. And the first thing they teach you at thought leadership school is you can only ever be a thought leader as if you have one of two things in your presentations. The first is a picture of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs' inspirational quote. Doesn't matter if Steve Jobs even said the quote, Steve Jobs' inspirational quote. That's the first thing. If you choose not to do that, Here's the other thing you can do. You have to put in one of these curves. This is my favorite ever exponential curve because it plots the number of mentions of the phrase exponential growth 
over the last six decades. I can think of no better way than to articulate the place we find ourselves in our society today with the rates of change of technology that surrounds us. We know this, we feel it, your audiences feel it every day that technology changes. Now, the second thing they teach you at Thought Leadership School is it, you can't just have opinions. As a thought leader, opinions are not enough. You have to back up your opinions with evidence. So, ladies and gentlemen, I spent a long time researching the data that will prove to you once and for all that we are a truly digital society. Seriously, do I have to do this? You all know this. You know that your audiences are changing. You know that just from your own personal experience, most of us barely know anybody between the age of 8 and 80 that isn't engaged with technology on an almost daily basis. Our job now is to live up to their expectations. They are already there and they're experiencing the benefits. But if I needed one final piece of evidence to persuade you that we are indeed a fully digital society, I have one final piece, and it's the horrific icing on the cake of our digital society. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the iPotty. <laughs> now, I love the iPotty because the thing that happens when you see this is there's a beautiful reaction that goes through the crowd. The first reaction is, oh my, are you kidding me? This is a real product, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. You can buy one of these on Amazon. The second reaction that the parents in the room have is after that incredulity of, like, oh my God, why would you do that? They then remember toilet training their kids. And then they think, oh my God, this is genius. If that was around when I was toilet, I would have done so. This is exactly the world that we live in. Technology exists all around us. We're using it in new and innovative ways, but we have a challenge. And the challenge is simply this. As great as the technology has become in our personal lives, it has yet to penetrate into our world of work. We still operate most of our organizations based on principles that were forged in the fires of the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. We structure our organizations based on the same principles that existed then. We use processes that have been around since Victorian times. We use these old Victorian work, ways of working and we apply 21st century technology. And all that technology is doing is making those old-fashioned ways of working a bit quicker and a bit cheaper. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that this is not the gift of technology. This is not what we were supposed to do with technology. What we're supposed to do with this gift is we're supposed to find new ways of working, new ways of engaging with audiences, new ways of being relevant to the people that we care about most. Because if we don't, this whole concept of working smarter is completely untenable. You will continue to have to run faster and faster unless you change what you do. So, if you could, just for the next 25 minutes, start to see a different future, start to break through the digital barrier and look to the opportunity that it gives you. And it starts here. It starts in this really, really boring world, a world of data. And I know you as an industry, you've always had data. You've always looked at data, but typically you use it as a byproduct of your business. You provide the products and services, the entertainment that you do. And then after you've done that, you look at the data to analyze what's happened. I am telling you now, your ability to turn that around, to use that data as a strategic asset to your organization, is the very hallmark that will define your future success. Excuse me, data is the fuel of your future. It should empower everything you do. Your job now is to build a reliable, renewable, sustainable way of generating as much data as you possibly can. Because when you have lots of data, it will change your view of the world. Here's a great example of this principle. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two vehicles. I've got on one hand a Toyota Prius, and on the other, I've got a Land Rover Defender, a 4x4 sport utility vehicle. Now, which one of these two vehicles would you say is better for the planet, more environmentally friendly? Put your hand up if you think it's a Toyota Prius. Put your hand up if you think it's a trick question, and <laughs> it's the Land Rover Defender. <laughs> 
And put your hand up if you want to be a management consultant, because you know the answer is, well, it depends, right? Because it does depend. It depends on how much data you use to answer the question. What we typically do as organizations is we take the data that's easily accessible, that's already at hand. Let's look at fuel consumption. Well, of course, if you look at fuel consumption, the best of these two vehicles for the planet is the Toyota Prius. That thing runs on water and pixie dust, hugs trees when you drive by. Not like the Defender, 12 miles to the gallon on a good day. Well, listen, the Americans back in 2008, they took a different approach to answering this question. They did a study called Dust to Dust, which essentially looked at from the creation of the components that go to make these vehicles through to the point at which the vehicle is thrown on the scrap heap, the best of these two vehicles for the planet is actually the Land Rover Defender. Now, why? Because over 67% of every Land Rover ever made over the last 70 years is still on the road. You cannot break these vehicles. Trust me, I've tried several times. And if you do succeed in breaking, you can fix them at the roadside with bubblegum and baling twine. Now look, the point of this example is not to advertise Land Rover cars. Although if any of you have got any connections and they're looking for sponsorship opportunities, obviously I'm available. The point is, look what happened to the answer to this question when we added more data. The answer fundamentally changed. There is not a question that you're asking of yourself, of your team, of your organization that will not fall prey to exactly the same principle. Your job now is to get as much data as you can. You should be smothering yourselves in data at every available opportunity because it will change the way that you see the world. But the real gift of all of this data is yet to come. And this is where we start to use this data, not to reflect on our past, but instead to accurately predict our future. This is already happening today, ladies and gentlemen. Companies uh, like Rolls-Royce, Aero Engine, amongst many others, are using this amazing data to predict the outcomes of things that will happen. And it's powered by technology from companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook and others. I was involved, when I was at Microsoft, some of my favorite projects were these predictive data projects. We did, in the UK, we predicted the outcome of the last, not the last World Cup, but the one before that. We predicted 15 out of 16 World Cup games, and we got them right. We did the Scottish referendum in the UK. We got that right within 2% of the public vote. We did X Factor, we did Pop Idol, and we even did what turned out to be the highlight of my Microsoft career, the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, yes. And we're getting it right. Now, better still, these companies, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and others, they make the algorithms that create this capability to predict the future available to everybody. You all have access to this. Just a service, and you point it at your data. And the question I need to leave you at this point is, how would you run your organization? How would you think about your audience in a world where you can predict what they will do rather than reflect on what they have done? You don't have to answer that question today, but you need to be able to answer it soon because the capability is already there. Now, what's making all of this possible is kind of the real reason I'm here. It's a single technology, and I would argue that it's probably the most important technology that anybody on the planet is working on today. And it's a technology that's called machine learning. Now, you're familiar of that technology through its other name, which is artificial intelligence. And even though the two things are actually slightly different, for the sake of argument, we can bring them all together. All today's AI is, all today's machine learning is simply statistical-based pattern recognition. Now, I will bet that you will remember the first time you ever became aware of this technology, because it will have been the first time that when you were using a search engine, as you're typing in your query, as before you finish the end of your sentence, the search engine is already suggesting you the end of the sentence before you finish typing. 
And if you remember that first experience, I remember mine, I'm like looking over my shoulder, who's watching, how does that work? Statistical-based pattern recognition. All the search engine is doing, the algorithm is looking at the characters that you've just typed in, and based on those characters, and against the three and a half billion queries that have been typed in today, the statistical probability of you going on to complete the sentence, like this is 99%, so I'm going to suggest that as the next option. That basic ability to spot patterns in lots and lots of data is the very thing that's going to change the world. But before we get into that, I need to do a bit more work on this term artificial intelligence. We're using it a lot today. We've got people downstairs talking about it within their products. But the problem with AI is that every time somebody says artificial intelligence, this is typically the image that we conjure up. This is the image that the media will print in the newspapers. And it's always a humanoid-looking robot looking thoughtfully off into the middle distance. This is not AI, ladies and gentlemen. This is science bloody fiction. This doesn't exist. If you want to know what AI actually looks like, what it really looks like, it looks like this. It's a data center. It's an invisible force. It's around you every moment of the day. It's in your pockets. But if you really want to engage with what AI actually is today and for the foreseeable future, it's very simple. I want you to think about AI not in terms of artificial intelligence, but I want you to replace those words with a single word, and that word is just automation. That's all today's AI is about. Anything that you do in your organization that follows an established pattern is something that can be easily automated by today's AI. And just like 200 years ago, when someone like me would have turned up to your business, your weaving mill with my revolutionary spinning jenny, and I would have transformed what you did as a company, I'm going to do exactly the same to you today, only this time, I'm not going to be doing it to the mechanical parts of what you do. I'm going to be doing it to the cognitive parts of what you do. Those things that follow a pattern, those industries where patterns are primarily the source of what they do, accountancy, the legal industry, these are all things that will be touched and fundamentally changed by the potential of AI. And what we have to do is we have to understand what that means to us. If the AI can do these parts of what we do, what is it we can now do as a result rather than simply be replaced? And why this technology is so important is it changes our society. This is an example that a few years ago was considered as science fiction. Today, it exists all around us, and we're kind of used to it. You know the scenario. The lady here, she speaks French. She has some internet-connected earbuds. The gentleman has an internet-connected phone. He speaks English. When he speaks English, she hears French real-time. When she speaks French, he hears English real-time. No other human being involved. Five years ago, this was science fiction. Today, it exists in your pocket on the device you already have. You can buy a set of these earbuds from companies like Google for about uh, 140 Swiss francs or euros, and it changes the world. And if you think about this in the context of us as a society, I think about this in the context of my 13-year-old son. Do I bother to get my 13-year-old son to learn a foreign language at school because by the time he enters his world of work, that will be a redundant skill? Now, I get that's provocative. Now, I get there are lots of reasons why we learn foreign languages in school, and of course, my son will learn one or two languages just like everybody else. But as a result of this technology, when he emerges from his education, he will be able to travel the world and speak not just those one or two languages, he'll be able to speak another 152 languages. He will be able to travel the world communicating with locals as if he were a local. This will fundamentally change the cultural experience of his life, not to mention his job prospects. This stuff changes what it means to be on this planet. It changes what it means to be a global digital society, and we have to get ready for it. It's such a big deal that even the computer scientists are excited by it. And if you've ever worked with computer scientists, you need to know it takes a lot to get these guys excited. They refer to this as the third computer age. It's that big a deal. So just for the completeness, 
in the first computer age is a world of the mechanical computer. This is a world of Charles Babbage and his analytical engine, a manual design, a constructed design that was so complicated, Babbage never finished it in his lifetime. It took the Science Museum in London in the UK until 2006 to finish that design. You're all familiar with the second computer age. This is the world of the digital microprocessor. This is the phone in your pocket, the computer on your desk. But the third computer age is different from the first two. The third computer age belongs to artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it is different from the first two ages for two fundamentally important reasons. The first is this. Unlike today's computers, I do not have to give algorithms instructions. I don't have to tell them what to do. If I want to get a computer to walk through that door arbitrarily, what I would have to do is I'd have to tell the computer where the door is in relation to where the computer is. I would have to describe to the computer all of the obstacles, the path that it would have to take. They don't have to describe the door. Does it push? Does it pull? What kind of a, a knob? Leave all those things. If I failed in any one of those pieces of instruction, the computer would fail in its task. Now, this is not true in a world of AI, in a world of algorithms, because I don't have to give AI instructions. If I want to get an algorithm to walk through that door, I simply play a million videos of people walking through the door, and it learns. It's like a child. And what's really important to understand is this is actually how we learn ourselves as human beings. And this is proven in some research. This comes from Cambridge University in the late 90s. And basically what it shows is if you speak English, and if you don't speak English, this will work in whatever is your native language. As long as I keep the first and last characters of the word in the right place, I can even mix up all of the other characters. I can even misspell words, and you will still be able to read the text. Can you read the text on the slide? Of course you can, because from the day you learn to read until the day you die, you create, curate, and tend to your own personal pattern of language. Every time you read something, you're making your own personal pattern of language slightly better. This is just how the algorithms work. And what happens is when your brain gets presented with something as ambiguous as this slide, it doesn't call on the rules, it doesn't call on the logic, it calls on your personal pattern, and it uses the pattern to reassemble the words so you can understand them. Now, there's another reason why this is a great example of how machine learning works, because it actually shows you the limitation of today's machine learning. What do you think happens when I show this slide to somebody who's just beginning to learn to speak English? Or if I'd shown it to my son, I don't know, when he was four or five and forming his own language skills? He can't read it. Makes no sense because they haven't established enough of the pattern. That's our job. We have to provide the patterns for the algorithms. If we don't do that, the algorithms don't function. But what this means, this difference between learning versus instruction, is it basically accelerates the power of what we can do with technology. Here's a video that many of you will have already seen. This is some robots from a company called Boston Dynamics. Now, this robot has not been programmed to open this specific door. This robot has been taught to understand its environment. It's been trained to recognize doors, to understand that there will be a handle mechanism, and to be able to manipulate that. We could never have done this using tradition. That's always a scary bit. With a second. It's like the robot uprising starts here. We could never have done this using conventional programming techniques. We had to have algorithms. We had to have machine learning to make that possible. That's how important that first big step for the third computer age, the difference between instruction versus learning. And then the second big difference is simply this. In today's computers, in today's world, everything on a computer relies on a principle called binary. Everything that a computer deals with is either a one or a zero. It's yes or no. It's black or white. This is fundamentally untrue in a world of algorithms. Because in a world of algorithms, in a world of AI, there is no yes, there is no no, there is only maybe. Everything you see is a probability. It's a probabilistic determination. Every algorithm works on the same principle, which is, I'm going to show you the most likely answer in the least amount of time. 
Now, this is okay today when the questions that we're asking of the algorithms, they're pretty trivial. Which uh, restaurant should I eat out in in Lausanne tonight? Which mountain bike should I buy? But the questions we're going to be asking of the algorithms are going to be getting more and more important to our personal lives. We're going to be asking things like, I think it's entirely probable that my son will choose his lifelong partner on the basis of a probabilistic determination from an algorithm. I think I will go to my doctors within five years and my doctor will say to me, hey, Dave, listen, we think there's a 67% chance that you're going to get prostate cancer. Now, as a human being, this is the problem, right? 67%. From a black box, I don't understand. As a human being, how do I choose the correct course of action? This is a question that you will be faced as organizations. The algorithm will suggest things for you to do. But if you don't know how to use that as the basis for your decision, then you're never going to get the value that they have on offer. Let me give you another example of how this plays out in the real world. This comes from a hospital in Cambridge in the UK, and this is in the oncology department. And what we have is a consultant oncologist using machine learning to be able to detect brain tumors. And so what the algorithms can do, they can look through a series of scans and identify if a patient has or hasn't got a brain tumor. Now, this is a process that would take a good oncologist about five hours, five hours to look through the scans of a single patient in order to detect whether they have or haven't got brain cancer. This algorithm can do it with greater accuracy than the human being in 30 minutes. But the really important part of this story, the bit that I really want you to engage with, is not the fact that the computer is better than the machine. The point I want you to engage with is what the consultant chooses to do with the time that's saved. Because what this particular consultant chooses to do is to not do another nine scans, to not treat another nine patients. It's kind of the obvious thing. The consultant takes a step back and she thinks, well, hang on a minute. Where could I add the most value in this process? Me as a consultant, me as a human being in this process. And then she realized that this is the point at which you're about to tell a patient that they have or have not got brain cancer. And so she figured out the best way to apply the time that she saved is not to process more patients, but actually to spend more time with that patient. This same decision, this opportunity cost of the times that saved, of the money that saved with AI is the decision that you will have to battle with. You will have to figure out for yourselves. What is it that we can now do now that the algorithms have given us more capacity than we had before. If you choose to bank that saving, I think you are as an industry or as an organization, I think you are dead within five years. If instead you choose to take that saving and invest in your people, invest in new areas, invest in reskilling people so that you can do the things that the machines can't do, that's the point at which you not just survive, but you will thrive in the future that is to come. Because what we can't do is we can't let this be an adversarial battle. I would argue in the fullness of time, we have never seen a technology that has been pitted against human beings. So why is it then that every day that we talk about AI, we talk about humans versus machines. We talk about robots taking our jobs. We're talking about algorithms taking over the planet. This is never the case. Instead, what I want you to think about is I want you to think about humans plus machines. If the algorithms are going to be really good at doing things like this, what is it that we can do that the algorithms can't, that can complement each other? How do we combine the best of computer capability with the best of human ability? That is our challenge. And every now and again, we've got to remind ourselves that humans are brilliant at change. There's a lovely myth that we tend to propagate ourselves that we hate change. This is not true. We would not have got through 70,000 years of existence on this planet, or millions of years of existence on this planet, unless we were good at change. And you can see little signs around you at every moment in time. We, all of us, we are shaped by the experiences that we have. And once upon a time, every now and again, you need someone to come from the technology world, and that's me today. My job is here to tell you about AI. And I need to give you a gentle little nudge to say, do you know what? 
This technology is going to be really important to you. You need to go out. You need to check it out. You need to understand it. You need to learn. You need to bring it into your business and use it to change your business. And if I do my job right, if the technology is as good as I say it is, you will come right back. And just like one of those desk toys that your dad used to have, the Newton's cradle, you will come back and say, that's brilliant, Dave. I want that, and I want more. So what can you do with this? I know there's a lot of information here, and there's a lot of great technology, and it's all a great promise. But realistically, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to your organization? Well, there's a few things I'd love you to engage with. The first is, you cannot be in this game unless you digitize your business. You have to digitize every asset that you have as an organization. And I am not talking just about the tangible, physical assets. I am not talking about your machines, your studios. I am talking about the invisible assets. I'm talking about the knowledge that your people hold, the way in which you engage with your audiences, the things that you know that other people don't. These are the things. If you can light them up, if you can make them exist in the digital realm, then I can innovate with them. We can do amazing things. And the brilliant thing about this is we're already in a world where lighting up these invisible, invisible assets is becoming easier and easier. We do it in our personal lives. This is an example from my personal life. Does anybody want to take a guess at what kind of data is on the screen here? Fitness data, exactly. But it's actually a very specific kind of fitness data because it's actually the fitness data for my dog. This is Meg. Now, Meg, if, do we have any dog owners in the room? A few, excellent. You don't need to be a dog owner to play this game, but you'll recognize maybe that Meg is a Border Collie. If you know your canine breeds well, you'll know that Border Collies are essentially the sociopaths of the canine world. Meg is no exception. We adopted her and her sister a few years ago from a rescue center. And Meg has this particular problem that she thinks that all human beings are sheep. Right? And quite frankly, after the last couple of years we've had in the UK, I'm not sure she's wrong. Bit of politics. So Meg's problem is she thinks that the humans are sheep. So when we go on a walk, and she did this last night before I flew out here, as we're walking around the fields of Oxfordshire, she will do the entire walk, three miles, backwards, locked on to the human being for fear that the human being may stray from the path. Now, I, ladies and gentlemen, I am a responsible dog owner. And after a few months of this kind of behavior, I was a bit worried. How do I know? as her owner, that Meg is getting enough exercise. How do I quantify that data? I don't know, and I agonized over that for weeks. And then I remembered, of course, I'm a nerd. So I did what all good nerds do. I put a little device on her collar, and now I know exactly what she's doing. I can even correlate the performance of her peers. Now, based on this, I've lit up. That data was already there. It already existed. Meg knew how much exercise she was getting. I just couldn't see it. Now I can. And now I can choose the correct course of action because I've made the data real. We do this to ourselves as human beings. Many of you will have one of these digital devices on you. I have this device. I love this device. This device will tell me things like my heart rate. Now, the thing I love about my heart rate is that I have always, more or less, give or take, I've always had a heart rate, right? It's always been there. This device makes it visible. This device enables me to go back in time and correlate things going on in my life with my heart rate. Oh, look at that. Every time I meet with my boss, my heart rate spikes. What's that about? Time to leave, apparently. Anyway, you can do this for your organization. You should be looking to find a Fitbit for your organization, a way that you can light up that data so that you can make the right choices about where you go in the future. 
But what that means for you in the room is that you have to build a data culture inside your organization. In the old days, we would hire people, data analysts, data specialists, to look through the numbers to give us the insight. But increasingly, we won't just be doing that. The tools that light up the value in all of that data will be available and accessible to everybody and simple to use. But if you don't know the questions to ask, if you don't know the limitations of data, or how you can use the data to get where you need to be, you're never going to be able to get the benefit that it has on offer. So it's crucial that you build this culture of understanding of data inside your organization. Now, this leads me to a really important principle about digital transformation. Now, just be interested in this room. Is anybody familiar with the people on this screen? Excellent, a few of you. So this is the height of British pop music in 1982. It was actually a global hit, a global success. There's a band called Funboy 3 and Bananarama who had a hit of an old jazz single. A cover they did of an old jazz single called It Ain't What You Do, It's The... There's a way that you do it. You see, you guys already know the answer. There is not a truer word in the world, a principle in the world of digital transformation than that. If you think what makes you special is the content that you put out, if you think what makes you special is the products and services that you put, I guarantee you, I can go anywhere else in the world and I will find equivalent products and services or content that for more or less the same price from other people, probably in this room. What makes you special is not those products or services or even the content. What makes you special is instead the way in which you choose to provide them. It's the way you build your audiences. It's the way you engage not just your audiences, but your employees too, the people around you. These will be the things that will make you stand out, that will make you become successful. Because in a world where everything is a commodity, what becomes different is the service that you provide around it. That's what becomes important. And it means that you have to focus on the outcome of what you do, not the process by which you do it. And ladies and gentlemen, this is not what you think it is. This comes from the beginning of my career. I was in London one morning. I was a very young man. And I was there about six in the morning. I was at a client meeting. I was working for Apple at the time. And I was there uncharacteristically early. And as I'm there trying to kill time, I'm on Oxford Street in London. If you know London well, you know it's a very busy street. It's six o'clock in the morning, and I come across this really curious scene. I come across this guy council worker, high-vis jacket, and he's standing in the middle of the road in Oxford Street, not on the pavement, middle of the road, and he's pointing these little dollops of white powder at regular intervals down the middle of Oxford Street. There's taxis and buses swerving around him. Now, I'm a curious guy, right, and I've got time on my side, so I went up to the guy, and I said, hey, listen, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm putting down elephant powder. And I'm like, elephant powder? What's that for? He says, well, it keeps the elephants away. And I'm like, but there aren't any elephants in London. And he just looks at me and smiles and says, I know, it's good stuff, isn't it? <laughs> I'm here all week. Ladies and gentlemen, your organizations, my organization too, is full to the brim with elephant powder. It's the shit you do that is completely redundant and irrelevant in a modern digital society. Our collective job, if you do nothing else in these two days, your job is to get rid of your elephant powder. This is the stuff that holds you back. This is the stuff that prevents you as an industry or as an organization. It prevents you from transforming. It's the stuff that says that we always work this way. You walk around your organization, you just have to talk to people. You say to them, hey, listen, why do we do this the way we do? And when you ever hear the answer, do you know, I don't know, but we've always done it like this. That's when you know you found elephant powder. If you can get rid of the elephant powder, then you put yourself in a place where you can start to transform. You can start to see the world in a very different way. And it is so important that you see the world in a different way because the world is changing in ways you do not understand yet. We've got to think differently about the future. Now, the problem with us as humans is that we tend to think that the future is a straight line. 
And we think the future is a straight line which is extrapolated from where we stand today, from where we were yesterday, and it's always up and to the right. But in a digitally connected society, the future is never a straight line. It bounces around like a pinball, and your ability to be successful based on your ability to predict the ricochets of that pinball as it goes around. Let me give you some examples of an industry that doesn't think the right way about the future. Now, you may not recognize this, but this is one of the first ever fully autonomous vehicles that have been approved for use on UK highways. And I love this. Autonomous vehicles in general is this beautiful paradox of technology because on one hand, if you think about the technology on its own, what an amazing world that we live in that we could build fully autonomous vehicles. Isn't that incredible that we can do that? But the flip side of that is then you start to look at the numbers and the numbers will tell you globally that we won't get to 50% of all miles driven autonomously until we get to 2040. And that number doesn't hit 100% until we get to 2070. Do you seriously want to tell me that by the time we get to 2070, we will still think the best way to transport human beings around the local environment is inside a tin robotic box on wheels? That cannot be the case. You only have to look to other places, other countries. Look what's happening in Dubai. This is 2017. This is almost two years ago now. They demonstrated the first ever drone taxi, two-seater taxi, no pilot. The problem is the automotive engineers of the world, they're stuck back thinking about cars because we've always had cars. And before cars, we had horses and carriages. They're not thinking about drones. The regulators, and you're an industry that loves a bit of regulation, the regulators on a good day regulate for today's world, but mostly regulate for yesterday's world. Do you know what the first law that the UK passed for the provision of autonomous vehicles on the UK highways? Is that there must be, at all times, at all times, there must be a human being inside the vehicle. I don't know, let's call them the driver, right? This is the madness of that kind of thinking because we don't know what to do. And that law actually was the same in the States, the same in many of the countries that are trialing autonomous vehicles. But the real problem of this kind of blinkered thinking about the future is neither of these problems. It's simply this. It's the opportunity cost of that thinking. Because for every second that an automotive engineer thinks that this is the future of transportation, they're not thinking about this. But more specifically, they're not thinking about this. If we were starting today trying to think about transportation and had nothing, this is what we'd want to build. But nobody's thinking about that. That's your challenge. Your challenge is to get outside of your industry. Your challenge is to get outside and look around. Look at how the world is changing. Try to connect the dots. Figure out where the pinball is going to go. Because if you do that, you will be ready for them. You will be able to build the services that shape the market, that shape the future. Now, I want to leave you with two thoughts. The first is this. is my job as a technologist, as a lifelong technologist, to tell you right here, right now, that technology is the least important of all of your problems. Trust me. And I can think of no better way to call on this, to bring this to life, than to call upon a quote of Pablo Picasso, of all people, who in mid-60s in Paris is being interviewed by some art magazine, and he gets asked this brilliant question. Now, why you would ask Pablo Picasso this question, I don't know. I wasn't there. But they said, hey, Pablo, what do you think about computers? And even though the computers in Pablo's mid-60s Paris are different to the computers you have in your pockets and on your desk, his answer was perfect. Because he just said, computers? Computers are useless. All they can give me is answers. What I really need is something that can ask the right questions. And ladies and gentlemen, guess what? <laughs> it's you. That's your bloody job. Your job is to figure out what is the question that we're actually trying to answer here. What is the question that we as a team, we as an organization, we as an industry are trying to answer? When you know what that question is, when you can be crisp and clear and articulate that question really well, you don't need me to tell you that the technology will make short work of the results.
So please just in summary understand, ladies and gentlemen, this is not my view of the future. This is not the Terminator and the internet is not Skynet. I have a very different view of the future and it's simply this. I see a world where we as humans, we stand tall, high and proud, right up on the shoulders of these digital giants that we've created. We use technology to extend our reach as human beings, not to replace us. But in order to do that, we have to do something very different. We have to equip our people with skills, not tools. We need people who are not just you know, understand specific coding languages or whether you can use Word or PowerPoint or whatever it is, but really, really important human skills. These are skills like critical thinking. These are skills like creative thinking, the ability to think deeply, the ability to communicate and collaborate, the ability to treat each other with empathy and respect when we communicate online. If we can make sure that every member of our team, every member of our organization, of our industry, of our family, of our society has access to these basic human skills, then and only then can we as human beings live up to all of the potential that this amazing technology is going to bring us. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Um, Amazing. I, I, I do love you forever for the picture of uh, Star Trek, the original series, from about 1965, I think. So 50 years ago, we were thinking about beaming around. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, yeah, brilliant. Um, there's about five minutes for questions. Who would like to ask a question? We have got uh, someone with microphone here, and uh, we've got a few minutes. So uh, I'm looking at someone who's going to wave a languid hand at me. If not, I'm going to pick on somebody. Who would like to ask Dave a question? While you're thinking, I'm going to ask you one question. You digitized your collie, your border collie. Yeah. Is there anything you could not digitize? Is there anything that would not work? Um, there must be. But the, the point is about how to think about it. And, and it's about what could you do with the information. So the way that we collaborate, for example, you would think that that's not very interesting. But the picture you can build of an organization by understanding who's talking to who, who responds more quickly than other people, actually you know, has potentially a, a bit intrusive, but also there's lots of value that you can do. And what we're seeing is technologies, and these health devices are a great example of just little sensors that we're starting to build into our world. You know, the session I was in earlier for listening to the BBC, looking at how they're now using basic data to get really deep insight about their audiences. These are things that many of you will already have access to, but maybe aren't thinking about. Back to publishing, maybe we're not asking the right questions of that data. So there, there must be things that we can't measure, but I would guarantee you that there's probably more things that you could, that you're not yet measuring, and that's the place to start. So if you can measure it, then there's opportunity. Absolutely. Right. Okay, and you can measure most things. There's a gentleman uh, down here. Uh, I think it's uh, young Nick. It is indeed young Nick. Thank you. Uh, Dave, thank you for a great talk. Question about music programming and technology. So many radio stations have people who are programming the music, and clearly we have algorithms that can program great music as well. Ultimately, which will be better for listeners? Will it be computers and AI, or will it be humans with ears? That's a great question, Nick, and I'm going to dodge the answer by saying you kind of need a bit of both. And, and so the algorithms can do great things. But back to my point about patterns, the algorithms are only as good as the patterns that they're provided with. So let's talk about music composition to start with, and then we'll get to scheduling, right? So right now, today, there's already been algorithms written that replicate Mozart's works. And what the algorithm can do is generate a new piece of music that sounds a bit Mozart-like. But that's only because the algorithm has been trained with Mozart's music. It couldn't then, the same algorithm could not then go and write a pop song because it hasn't been trained to do that. 
So we've got to understand the limitation of what we're asking the algorithms to do today. When it comes to things like programming, there are days where the scheduling becomes a bit obvious, the days that the AI-based scheduling becomes really important. But what we miss, if you only get shown things from an algorithm, which is, we think you're going to like this because other people like you have liked that as well, you miss this really important thing called discovery. And discovery is so important because it's a very complicated task. It's not just a question of sounding the same or being liked by the same type of people. Sometimes it's the really unusual stuff, and that needs to be curated by a human. One of my jobs at Microsoft was I used to work for their search engine, Bing, and I always used to argue with the engineers that I wanted to put a thing called a serendipity slider on the search bar. Because there are times in your life where you don't want any surprises. Just tell me the bloody address of the restaurant. But then there are other times when you're researching a project that actually, I want you in between all of the signal, throw me a bit of random bit of noise that may make me start to think a bit differently. Show me something that I wouldn't have expected to look at. I think that's the job of a good editor. I think it's a good job, a job of a good content producer is to bring in those random elements that an algorithm today could never do. So my answer, Nick, in summary is I think you just, you need a bit of both. You need the power of the algorithm, but you also need some of the beauty, beautiful unpredictability of the human in there as well. Thank you. Okay, so back, back to what you said earlier, really, that uh, humans should ask good questions, and that's the human role. Absolutely. Yeah. There's one, one, other, one more. Okay, Where are, where's the hand? Yeah. Uh, so here you're from, yeah, where you're from, I'm, please? I'm from Swedish National Radio. Fantastic. Uh, I was just wondering, did anybody put a chip on the listener? Did anyone put a chip on the listener? Yeah. Oh, I have to believe that they have done. That would be so good. So, uh, I mean, and what, to read an emotional response? Is that the, where you're going with that? Yeah. Well, it's completely feasible that we could do that today. And I would, I would guess that somebody probably has done that out there. I'm not aware of anything, but I wouldn't be surprised to see that. And I think increasingly we're going to be seeing that. There is another version of this show that I have that shows some of the technology. And one of the technologies that's available now is emotion recognition. And, and what I love about it, again, it's a sort of humans versus machines thing in a sense that I've got algorithms that would just look at your faces right now and based on the expressions that you're showing would then detect whether you're happy, sad, bored, tired, whatever it might be. And we can do that on a really large bat. I could do the entirety of this audience. But the trick is, the algorithm doesn't know what that means. It doesn't know what it means for you guys to be sad or happy. Well, it can't then articulate what that's going to then change the service. That's where the human has to come in. So, but it is those data points, and I would encourage you that where you can do that, and do that in a way that's respectful of people's privacy, and all those great things, learn things, start to look for patterns. The thing, this thing only works, the algorithms only work when you feed them with the data. And that's the point about the fuel of the future. So if you can build that data, if we can instrument people and we can learn from what they're doing, then actually we can create better services. We can create things that enhance what they do. Mm -hmm.